Hey guys, I am so excited today for having Dr. Michael Posma, which I don't even know where to start introducing, right? Um, as he's the president and co-founder of Gifted and Thriving. He's the program director for the nonprofit Sang. He's wrote a number of article and books. Um, he holds a master on gifted and talent and creative education. And I could just keep on going um, like this. Um, I would say, would you want to introduce yourself very shortly yourself? And then let's dive in directly to our first questions. Sure. Uh, well, welcome everyone. Good to meet you, although I can't see you. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been in this field uh, in a number of roles for um, it's going on 25 years now. And uh, it really started just in the educational field, uh, working at a middle school in an inner city situation where, you know, that's a steep learning curve as a teacher. Um, but one of the biggest lessons there that I learned was developing a trust relationship with your with your students was the key and that continues through today especially working with twice exceptional and uh, and gifted students probably the key to everything um, but regardless uh, I have three uh, children that are twice exceptional but they're in their 20s um, yes we survived somehow uh, and one that is 30 uh, I think she's almost 31 now so, and she's in Minnesota and uh, has a, we have a brand new grandchild. We're going to go visit uh, tomorrow for the first time. So uh, excited about that. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think that that's probably enough in a sense in the state of Washington and uh, um, yes, been around the block on this field. That's for sure. So I'm already curious. You mentioned um, that trusting relationships is the key all. What is, and a learning curve, of course, going into the teacher's field. So I'm curious, as many people going into homeschooling, mm -hmm. and yes, we already have a trusting relationship with our kids as they're our kids, but yet, I would say, what are, or what is one component that you found helps to build a trusting relationship, even if you're learning with your child? Because I find that an extra challenge sometimes. It's actually really much more of a challenge in the fact that it's too trusting. Um, and what I mean by that is for many gifted 2E kids or multi-E kids, I don't like to use the word 2E because I find most of them are multi have multiple exceptionalities, um, but regardless, it's an easy term. Um, the fact is that home tends to be their safe place in most cases. And when they're in their safe place, they're free to express emotion, to almost be unhinged sometimes. Um, so you get it all. And a lot of times when I work with twice exceptional kids and their families, they're able to handle the school day at school and then they get home and then, then they vent. So the issue is I'm seeing with homeschool parents is the fact that there's no place for them to really actually vent vent. You know what I mean? Because they're at home the whole time. And so this is where I would encourage in that sense, finding other homeschoolers, meeting up in groups, 
letting the kids experience other kids in other places and other environments, uh, even in this tough situation with COVID, you, you have to get out. You got to move about. You know, the greatest antidote for anxiety is movement. Um, so getting out more around doing things, doing whatever it is, going meeting at the park, or, you know, going to an, an atrium or a arboretum of some sort, or, or just getting out there really allows for those kids to express themselves in different ways rather than sitting in front of a computer or sitting in the homeschool room, you know, with you. Um, you have that trust relationship already, but, um, and this has another component when those kids get to be teenagers because suddenly they become more internalized and maybe that trust component isn't as solid as you probably thought it might be. So in that case, I always encouraging across the board mentors, kids having a mentor outside of the family that they can, uh, spill to if they need to. And that's a real difficult thing to find, um, especially, you know, again, this is where we need community. This is where we need uh, larger homeschool groups that have maybe older kids um, that can develop relationships and be able to talk, share their experiences, all that kind of stuff. So it's a multifaceted issue in a sense, because the trust, like you said, has already been built from youth, but it doesn't allow the kids a place to really vent out their frustrations and emotions when they do happen or you get the brunt of it and that adds a different component to being a teacher and a parent and those two have to be kept separate so um what we are finding with um teaching kids online is that because their parent is also their teacher sometimes in addition to the um uh to the trust issues that's, that develop, like you were talking about, the um, the executive functioning almost seems to get stuck in a way. Um, our, our projects are month-long projects. So we give you, you know, um, a marketing campaign that you have to establish and we have steps along the way. But that executive functioning from planning from start to finish, because it's not a classroom chunked with you know, 45 minutes and that's what we have and everybody get their planner out. Um, we're really struggling to to support our families. Any advice? Yeah, I, I think I wouldn't be afraid to reach out for help when it comes to that because executive function has to be explicitly taught. Um, it is something um, that is not inherent in our gifted 2E kids because of the fact that there's that asynchronous piece. You need to have the front, you know, the prefrontal cortex needs to be online for executive functioning to happen. Uh, too often, our, our, for our kids, the limbic system is overwhelmed and it leaves, you know, it, it leaves the, uh, the emotional part of the brain in the driver's seat. And when that is in the driver's seat, you cannot function from an executive functioning perspective. So you have to you know, teach the kids how to regulate themselves, first of all, before you can even get into executive functioning. So they need to understand self-regulation. You need to teach them social emotional skills deliberately. And that should be part of everyone's curriculum. Um, and so when that is, when that is uh, 
when the prefrontal cortex is on, that's the problem-solving part of the brain, the rational part of the brain, that is where executive functioning lies. So they have to be regulated first. So then when you get into executive function, you've got to teach them about prioritization. You've got to teach them about organization. You've got to teach them. And not only teach them, you've got to practice it. So for my kids, I actually start with prioritization because prioritization can cover a whole lot of executive functions. So I have kids right now that the first part of their day, um, I created a prioritization checklist for them and they have to go in. And um, so they have a routine now. And sometimes for two week kids, routine is hard, but right now the ones that I'm working with, they will, they get up in the morning, they have their first half an hour, you know, they get to do their breakfast, their brush their teeth, whatever the routine is. Then they have to sit down for just 10 minutes and I have a checklist for them and they have to prioritize their day. One, two, three, four. This is a judgment call, right? So they prioritize what needs, what's most important that has to get done today. And then I use three or four, sometimes five. And then I have them checklist. How long is this going to take me to do an estimate? Right. And then I have them set a time. So I'm going to do priority one at 10 AM and I'm going to do it for one hour. Right. When that hour is done, they have to stop that priority. Hmm. And then they go through the checklist. Right. So if they're not, if they didn't estimate properly and, and they need an hour and a half, well, mm -hmm. that priority goes back to tomorrow's checklist, yeah. right? So it teaches them to organize their day. It teaches them to organize their time frame around their day. And it teaches them to estimate. It teaches them all kinds of executive functioning skills. And it's actually kind of worked magic in a sense because the kids are now getting things done, right? Now, now there's, I mean, there's a lot more issues in terms of executive function. It's, there's inertia, there's getting started, there's following directions, there's, you know, you go down, down, there's follow through, but that's a starting point that I find is really helpful. And then for those that um, need more than that, you know, Seth Perlow has got some great resources on his website. Uh, Sarah Ward has great resources, especially for reluctant writers um, on their websites. And, um, so go get some information, go get some help because executive functioning is one of the primary skills in terms of that social emotional development, that foundation that our kids are going to need to be successful wherever they are, whether it's homeschool, whether it's the workplace, whether it's college, um, that's the foundation study habits, all those different things. And too often we let these soft skills go because we're too interested in getting through the maths and sciences and this and that and the other. And there's, oh, we got to get this done and this done and this done. Well, you know, that's called the tyranny of the curriculum. And, you know, it's more important to really prioritize what your kids need. And this is especially true when you're dealing with younger kids. And the issue is when we don't do that, I'm dealing with kids that are 18, 19, 20, in their mid-20s that don't have executive functioning skills, that we got to start from scratch, Right. And that makes it more difficult. So the earlier you start with executive functioning, make sure it is a priority in your homeschooling environment. And maybe if you have a homeschool group, you have one person designated as that person who can do a good job teaching social, emotional, executive functioning. Um, and, and, and that to me is also part of that metacognitive process. It's, it's one of the steps. So I'm, I'm curious, 
kind of follow up with, because I, like, I agree 100%. I love the sit down every like 10 minutes every morning and prioritize, uh, set a timer and go through that. I would advise that um, to everyone. I'm curious at what point, when do the parents stop being the planner for their kids? Like when, when do, because that's a big question that many have asked us as a company. Um, mm -hmm. When, how much do we involve ourselves in, you know, these, for example, executing, functioning and planning, looking that they get their stuff down um, versus wanting their child to be independent um, and getting and doing their mistakes and everything. So that it seems like a balance that a lot of people are asking for. When do we stop being kind of the pusher? That's yeah. <laughs> uh, my philosophy is a gradual release. You know, it's the same as Zagotsky's, uh, you know, zone of proximal development. You don't want them drowning and you don't want them sitting there not doing nothing, right? You want them comfortably treading water. So from that perspective, you start off being the catalyst. You start off being the teacher. You practice with them. You give them these, the skills. And then you gradually release as you see them getting more independent. I think it's just a natural process and it's going to change based on uh, the age of the child. When they're four, five, six, seven years old, they're going to need more guidance than if they're starting at 13, right? If they're starting at 13 or 14, you show them the process and then you basically back off a little bit and watch them struggle through it. And by the way, failure is the best way to learn. Mm -hmm. In essence, you know, we want our kids to be making mistakes. So we monitor that. And until they get the practice, then you can back off. It's, uh, you know, uh, our kids need to be independent in the way they learn. By by high school, I would say our kids are 14, 15-year-olds, should be plotting their own courses, should be directing their own learning with guidance from the parents. That's where they should be. But that's, again, it's a gradual release because you can't do that with an 8-year-old. So this is kind of challenging, right? Because we know that metacognitively our our population really struggles mm -hmm. and sort of their their ground base level is to think negatively about themselves. And then mm -hmm. you want them to fail because failure is how they learn. But mm -hmm. when they fail, they're taking such a harder hit. So how do you mm -hmm. balance that? Well, I always say fail in safe places. So what is the support mechanism around them when you're challenging them? Because you're right, it's a fine, fine line uh, between, you know, taking that, taking it really hard in terms of ruminating on that, oh man, I'm so bad, I'm so bad, I'm so bad, why can't I do this? I'm supposed to be gifted, blah, 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 blah. Well, I would first eliminate the word gifted in their vocabulary um, and, you know, recognize it as high intelligent, intellectual potential in a sense. But we have to keep everything in, in consideration uh, in terms of all the different factors there, right? You have vulnerable kids, but vulnerable kids still can fail in a safe environment. And then the key to failure is providing a scaffolded approach to get better, right? Okay, we're going to try this. 
we're going to, it may be difficult for you and you may not get it right this time, but I want to see you try, right? You're encouraging that approach that I can do it approach. But when they do struggle, when they do mess it up, you provide a scaffolded approach to, okay, here's where we might've gone wrong. Here's, and here's step two, three, four, in terms of building that up again, right? So it's the combination of challenging them, maybe watching them flail a little bit and then providing them a way out and doing that in a safe place in a safe environment and you start early i had one of my sons was an extreme perfectionist and how did i know that when he was two years old i put skates on him we lived in minnesota at the time he was out on the skate and he started skating right he was he's a natural athlete he just started skating at two then he fell over and I was in, I was in a yard away, and I could hear him screaming, "I'm never going to be good enough." Oh, at two. At two, right? I go. I think I might have a perfectionist on my hand. <laughs> so, bottom line is, what do I do? I didn't come out and rescue him. I came and brought the little chair. So you know what? Try it again with the chair. Oh. Right. Right. So he took the chair around the rink for a little while. Yeah. You know? The scaffold. Yep. And then he got a little stronger in his feet. And then he said, oh, I kind of, I like this, Dad. Okay. Well, let's keep trying again. And that's the same approach you want to do with those that vulnerability, right? Mm -hmm. Because you know that if he had that negative experience over and over and over and again, he'd give up. So providing them a way out can help them. And again, mm -hmm. the younger... If you had gone and rescued him and, and picked him up, would he have just, in this case, like, just said, okay, I'm never skating again? Probably. Yeah. Okay. He might have tried it and fell again and then crawled off the rink and been done. Right. Yeah. So I gave him a little tool to help him. I didn't even get him up. I said, here's the chair. Mm. He grabbed the chair, got himself on his feet. I said, here's how you use it. Right. Get the back of the chair and push it. Right? Yeah. And that is the key to this, is you're providing the support mechanisms for them to be successful in what they're doing. So they experience failure. They experience the fact that I can fail, but I can learn from my failures and mm -hmm. keep going. But I'm providing them a support mechanism to, get, to have them continue to grow. Wow. I love that. I, and I love the story as well. I think it brings over the point really well. And I know for myself, it'll boost my creativity and moments to come in my future uh, with my kid when she has those moments. So thank you for that. So diving deeper on the term metacognition that you mentioned before, mm -hmm. and I read from your, your um, website that how you develop these superpowers inside of our kids. So could you dive in what what do you mean by metacognition and how we apply that when we learn with our kids or are with our kids? Yeah, well, the classic definition of metacognition is thinking about the way we think. But I have a broader definition in that as you start to think about the way you think, you actually think about how you fit in the world around you? How do you fit in your family? How do you fit in your community, your school, your environment? And, and, you know, and developing yourself from within 
out in essence. So it's really, really important for our kids to develop a metacognitive and that is that's the foundation for executive functioning skills. It's the foundation for success. They need to understand who they are, why they are, and how they fit in. And why that is important is because our kids are super sensitive. We, depending on who that child is, but uh, most gifted TUI kids, actually a lot of the TUI kids I work with tend to be more highly gifted. Um, and I'm not gonna get into all the different scales, but uh, the bottom line is the more potential they have in that sense, the more intense sensory integration they experience. Meaning what we have as we grow and learn are sensory inputs, right? We learn by using our senses. Um, we actually, and we actually start that even in the womb. That actually starts happening in the womb. Um, what we find with, with our kids is that those epigenetic signatures, those prints are happening at a much greater rate. They're happening quicker um, and they're impacting our brain in a different way because so it's an intense epigenetic print situation. So that makes them much more sensitive to external stimuli, right? So if they don't learn why that is, they don't learn that their brain functions a little differently, a little more atypical in nature, that's easy that you know, because those prints can easily overwhelm the limbic system, right? The, the system of emotional control and, and appetite and all that other stuff. Um, they don't learn that, then they don't know, understand why they react almost sometimes intensely or even violently to different stimuli, right? So they can be easily overwhelmed in a positive way, but they can also be overwhelmed in a negative way. Now, those, when we overwhelm kids in a negative way, those we call triggers, right? Those are the bad memories that they tend to ruminate on. And the one, th the one thing we don't quite understand yet about the that brain, that high potential brain, that TUI brain, is the fact that negative prints tend to uh, lie deeper and last a lot longer than positive prints. They embed themselves in the brain in a different way. So we have a tendency to ruminate negatively about who we are about self, right? Now you add on top of that, if you are feeling different, let's say you're, you're uh, really smart individual, but you have ADD and maybe um, dyslexia, right? You're coming up with all this potential against these other factors and you're acting a different way. You're presenting in a different way. And yet you have the intelligence to, to understand that something's off, right? So you feel off. Now, often what happens then is those kids get into schooling situations where they struggle socially make friendships because kids don't understand who they are and even with adults right i'm excited to get into the school because i'm it's supposed to be a place of learning and my teacher doesn't understand me and treats me differently and in some cases um i'm i'm working on a new paper right uh actually a couple of them but one of them we're looking at instances of uh, school induced trauma in our kids which is not something that's been written out or written about a lot, but this is what happens with our kids. When they don't fit in, they can experience, they're vulnerable to what we call little, little T's, mini T traumas and a lot of them. And that affects the way their brain works. 
So the bottom line is we teach them that metacognitive process of who they are. And I start with, with them, the metaphysical child. What does your brain look like? How does it operate? What's going on in there, right? Accepting who I am in terms of, of, of all that stuff that might be a little bit atypical. Why am I so intense? Why am I this? Why am I that? Well, now that it makes sense, I can start building a new positive profile of who I am and what kind of superpowers that I have. You know, I consider ADD a superpower. I have ADD. And sometimes, yes, it's a pain in the butt. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it allows me to get things done. Uh, my, when I can use that ADD in a sense, my second book, actually, I wrote in nine weeks because I was coming up at a deadline and suddenly I had to tap into that ADD. So I better get going on this thing, right? And so I used that and tapped that and produced a lot based on, on, on you know, I don't think I could have done that if I didn't, wasn't having multiple exceptionalities, right. right? I do the same thing when I research. I can go into hyper mode and research and get things done very quickly and then you know, and I won't mention the stagnant periods, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and this is what we need to teach our kids is that, yes, while you may be a little bit different, you may be a little bit atypical in that sense. You have something that nobody else has. You have a unique brain, a unique profile, and a unique ability to be able to do whatever you want. Now, I don't want to I don't want to give them expectations that are unreachable. Right. reasonable expectations in terms of their potential and um the earlier you can start doing that you know the better off i i work with four and five year olds sometimes just to give them a basic explanation of what's going on why why do i cry easily why do i get angry why do i um feel really bad when someone steps on a bug you know why 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 those questions have to be answered because the kids, if they're not answered, they continue to ruminate inside. And so the metacognitive part <clears throat> of the process in terms of growing up and, and, and experiencing life uniquely um, is extremely important for them to be successful later on, right? Problem is we don't do it. We don't teach social emotion. We don't teach metacognition in, in, in schools. And so we see our kids, especially when they start hitting puberty, are already starting to have all kinds of existential issues and in, internal issues as well because they don't know who they are they don't know how to handle it and they see themselves as as outcasts yeah and we have listeners here who have the same just just found out i have add and i have masked my whole life i want to create a better life for my son who has diagnosed adhd years ago very honestly i feel you because I had the same journey being ADD myself. Uh, guys, by the way, if you have any questions, you can comment anytime your questions and we'll come to them um, as we get get through these things. This is so when I when I paraphrase in my own words, what I understand is that we should talk more with our kids um, who they are, why they are and how they fit in and frame it in a way that I guess that clearly shows their strengths. Um, yes, with the challenges that they will have and also the opportunities that they have um, 
so they understand that they're different and that that is good. It's just different, I guess. It's as some uh, said, we're past hunters. I don't know. There's different philosophies of of that out there, but that's what we should do with our kids as they grow up. Absolutely, and it's and it's a balanced approach. You know, I'm the one of the biggest components of of, of work toward their strengths first, but we never ignore the weaknesses. Um, sometimes we have approaches in gifted education that are much just too much strength based, strength based, strength based, and we ignore the weaknesses. Well, the weaknesses aren't going to go away, right? They're going to be there. Um, I had some sensory integration issues when I was a kid. Um, ADD, and I also had a bit of Asperger's. I was on the spectrum in that sense. So I had to learn to accommodate these things so that now I can I can go and do a lecture for a thousand people and have no issues, right? I can get up on there and yeah, no big deal, right? So it's 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 a really guiding that child through that, emphasizing the strengths. Yes, but never ignore those weaknesses. They have to be addressed, right? They have to learn that these are, can be challenges, but they can also be gifts, um, depending on how you approach it. So it's, it's real important to have that balance. Uh, I just see when I travel and, and do stuff that, you know, in schools today, it's unfortunate, but our gifted programs tend to be those pullouts, right? It's mm -hmm. the once a week pullout, which is never enough. And yet it's gonna be that fun experience, right? It's gonna be out, boom, 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 but they're not addressing the whole child. Right, you can't address the whole child in one hour, or a couple hours a week. Right, it's it's got to be kind of a more inclusive program where you can approach everything from a holistic perspective. So um, that actually leads to a question I've been thinking about about um, this new way of homeschool kids being educated by by online classes, right? So sure. you sign up for a class and you have it for two hours once a week. Mm -hmm. um, if that is your educational experience, how do you create that, that grit, that sense of community, that positive metacognition, all of the things that you've been talking about if your education is kind of piecemeal? Um, that becomes really difficult. Because if you're, for instance, if you're teaching an online class for an hour a week or even two hours a week, you don't have time to build trust relationships. You don't have time to build the routines to tackle the social, emotional, or metacognitive issues that a child might have. Your direction is to approach this content, this material, deliver it, right? You might have some discussions and things like that, but you're not going to have the in-depth time to really go in. So that is where the parent or the homeschool group or whatever it is has got to come in and not just use online stuff, but they really, really got to develop their own types or borrow from different places, you know, social emotional curriculums or this, or that, the other, um, you know, uh, I think you have to balance that. You can't just go with online courses because those kids will never get that type of training. And I don't even know if you could, if you actually, taught a course on social emotional development, if you could actually still even accomplish that, right? Because you're not developing a trust relationship with a trust relationship with a child in that manner. It's Can a trust relationship be built online? I'm thinking about a mentor that might live, 
you know, a mentor in the area you're interested in and you're working with them, you're allowed to be their research assistant and can you build a trust relationship with them? Yes, but it takes time. Mm. And that's the issue. Most of the time, these courses are what, six week courses, maybe eight week courses. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do that now with my clients, with the kids I'm working with, but it takes time, sometimes six months, sometimes a year before they really start to open up um, and really reveal the internal angst sometimes, you know, the reason the parents called me in the first place. But the other piece that I do is I work with the whole family. I don't work with just the child. The parents are involved, right? So I'm working with the parents in conjunction with the child all the time. Um, and that makes a bit more of a difference because then you have a, more of a co, uh, a cooperative approach, right? So the bottom line is from a course perspective, I don't know if it's possible. If it's a long-term relationship, yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. Right. And I actually think that kids, especially as they get a bit older, need that outside opinion, that outside approach, that outside, hey, here's what's going on. I'm really not comfortable telling my parents right now about this. Um, but hey, you've been through this before, right? An uncle, maybe, or an aunt, or, a, or a, like you said, a mentor in the, in the community. Um, and typically someone that might have gone through similar type of experiences. Mm -hmm. So we have a question uh, from Facebook and guys, I'm sorry, I cannot see your names in this program right now. So the question is, how can we address the weakness and at the same time increase self-confidence? So how do you address um, the weaknesses? Well, again, it's a balanced approach, right? You want the kids to be self-reliant and confident first. Right. And that's where you emphasize the strengths to build up that self-confidence. The metacognitive part, those things have to be established. The foundation has to be established. And then you go in and the kids know what those weaknesses are, but you just take direct approaches to it. You know, if it's anxiety, you address the anxiety. If it's if it's dyslexia, then maybe you need to get some help from the outside and have someone come in and really work on that dyslexia piece. Right. Most parents are not equipped in terms of really focusing in on those weaknesses and saying, here's the methodology, right? Here's what you do with ADD. Here's what you do with dyslexia or dysgraphia or, you know, so in many cases you have to look for some outside uh, help in those, in those things to really be specific as to what it is. But if you're, if you're again, balanced in, in all these things, your kids should be capable of understanding that they need help in that in those particular areas. But again, I don't have any formulaic thing where I can say, okay, you need to do this, 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 and this. Um, but I do think you need to get professional help in dealing with that to some of those weaknesses. I would be curious um, to, if we talk about strength-based and for example, giving compliments, right? What what are you looking because there's different theories on when to give compliments and how to give compliments mm -hmm. uh, so what would you if you say i'm trying to understand if you say strength based what do you specifically mean or do you have an example or a story um, that demonstrates this well i always like to so first of all compliments i'm not a big person on compliments i'm more talking about validation so 
understanding the child and being there for the child. But in terms of those, those strengths in essence, for instance, um, if, if I'm a, if I'm a great reader, right. It's not just about the reading and the volume of reading. It's about the comprehension. It's about the interpretation. It's about going depth into that particular thing, reading response and all those things that could be a strength of mine, right? I may be high in vocab and able to read, 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 read. But if I can't, if I, let's say if I have dysgraphia and I can't do reading response because I can't hold the pencil properly, then what are the avenues I'm going to use to alleviate that piece? Is it going to be on, on typing? Is it going to be voice, voice to text? Is it, what is it, what, what's that, you know? So I have the, the, I have the strength. I want to embrace that strength. So I'm in sixth grade, but I want to read Shakespeare. I want to read Hamlet and I want to really dive into it. Okay, good. Let's provide that for you. But then let's provide you an avenue for expression so that you can really take Hamlet and go deep with it. So adapting the gift to the weakness. Does that even make sense? Yeah. So not complimenting and saying, wow, you're such a great reader. No. You want to read Hamlet. Wow. You're so smart. But just as they, oh, you want to read Hamlet? That's challenging. Let me get it for you. And then. Yeah. The problem is when we get too complimentary with our kids and they keep hearing it, they keep hearing, oh, you're so smart or you're so this or you're so that is you're setting unrealistic expectations for them down the road. Meaning, well, they always said I was so smart. And then suddenly when they encounter a place where they're not doing well, mm -hmm. well, I've heard them my entire life that I'm so smart, I'm so smart. So there's something wrong with me. You know, what's going on with me? And then it becomes a devastating blow. So we come alongside them and provide them the avenues for them to embrace their their strengths. And yet, again, balancing that with, with support on the weaknesses. So can I ask, even if you give compliments on the growth mindset, right? Not complimenting the, uh, yeah, you're so smart, but for example, uh, yeah, you've trained so hard for this or you didn't give up. You wouldn't give compliments on that as well, or that would go under validation. I would say in that sense, wow, you trained really hard, right? Yeah. You worked really hard for this and see, and see what you accomplished, right? Not, oh, you're so smart, that's why you did this. It's, hey, you worked really hard on this. You know, uh, I really like the way you did that. I really like the way you tackled that homework piece without me asking to, right? Um, but not, hey, you're the smartest kid I ever knew, so why can't you read this book in two minutes? Yeah. Well, exaggerating, of course, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. The problem is we have to make sure we balance our approach in terms of how we lift up our kids, how we support our kids. We can't be always complimenting, complimenting because we're setting up false expectations for who they really are. That makes sense. So a uh, comment is, I've heard the phrase, you must be so proud of yourself. What about that? Uh, again, you're setting your kids up because why would, if that kid, if that child doesn't feel that proud of himself for whatever, and thinks it's just a normal thing, you know, well, this is what I can do. Again, that's dangerous, right? And then in that same way, you're putting it on them to come up, oh, okay, I guess I must be proud of myself, mm -hmm. right? So you're setting up a false narrative. So what you really wanna do is we want to complement their approach. 
again, I really like the way you did that, or I really like that you studied for a couple hours, even though maybe you didn't have to do two hours of study. But I'm guessing that's probably going to be beneficial for you when you tackle that exam or whatever it is. Um, so it's a, again, it's a really fine line, right? Um, and sometimes parents, we just say things without thinking, right? I'm guilty of it. You know, I sometimes look back at our parenting and go, wow, I'm surprised our kids made it. <laughs> you know? Because there are times when our kids, especially when they're teens and I was pulling them out of schools and uh, Amanda was pulled out at seventh grade, Sean pulled out at ninth grade, um, like Ray when he started. The only one to actually two that got through, Nikki got through and Alex barely got through because uh, he had extreme anxiety. Um, but when you're in the midst of it, sometimes it just looks like it's you're you're desperate, right? You're desperate for answers. You're desperate for hope. And I'll tell you, folks, there's hope. You know, we we deliberately called our company Gifted and Thriving for a reason, because there's always hope for our kids to get through, and they will thrive if you give them the right resources and the right and the right support. Yeah. So about those resources, um, we are so lucky to talk with, with families all around the world. And mm -hmm. we hear two things all the time. One is, um, I, I, I never planned to homeschool. I'm an unintentional homeschool parent. I don't want to be in this situation. And two, we hear, um, there's no resource for me. You know, there are families in other countries and in parts of the United States that don't live in cities where a pod just isn't reasonable, but neither is sending their kid to school for a trauma reason. Some schools don't provide gifted programs, whatever it is. Um, what can a parent do to stop their own rumination and spinning of, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't want to be here. I'm not good at this in order to focus on what their kid needs. Well, the nice thing about homeschooling is it doesn't have to be a traditional approach, right? Again, that depends on your state, your country, wherever you are. But the bottom line is you got a lot of freedom. So the first thing I would say is look at education from a thematic perspective. Think about, you know, some of the things that the kids, you can go through the standards and this and that and the other. But if you really look at a thematic approach, you can start bringing in all kinds of resources in based on, I'll, I'll just give you an example. Uh, when we started our Navigator program back in 2008, um, which is a magnet school for, for highly gifted TUI kids, um, our first year theme was oceanography. And we could take math, science, reading, writing, all that stuff and weave it into oceanography, which made it much more easier in terms of, and much more interesting for the kids. And then they had an overall project where they had to redevelop a, any area of coastline in the world and give it a 50-year window where it's going to be eco-friendly, right? So they had to look at it from geology, they had to look from uh, social studies, they had to look at it from every perspective and then redevelop that piece. So you can do those kind of things and still feel confident that they're learning. You know, there's math involved in that, there's all kinds of stuff involved in that, it depends on where they are. Now, the other piece is there are other resources out there on the net, Gifted Homeschool Forum, would be somewhere that I might join, get in the forum, people provide resources, this that, and the other. Look for those kind of outside support mechanisms, right? And maybe even try to create a pod online. Um, and maybe that's a service that, uh, you know, 
that folks like you guys can provide is, hey, is there, are you isolated? Sign up for this list here. Does anyone in your area willing to do an online cohort? Mm -hmm. Right. Because um, I, I can see that the panic in the eye of the parent that suddenly realizes I got to do this and there's really no option. And guess what? I'm isolated here. Right. That is a panic approach. In fact, <laughs> our first year with when Sean and Amanda were off, we didn't do anything. Right. <laughs> we as, really a, as a teacher and a principal, you were just like, nope, we got to stop. <laughs> well, we, we needed a recovery period. Hmm. Number one. And I didn't have the time because I was running the school when this happened. And my wife, Julie, was there and she was panicking because she didn't know what to do. She's a business. She was a business person. Right. Mm -hmm. so I said, let's just let them be for a while. Let them find themselves again, because there had been some traumatic experiences, especially for Amanda uh, at the seventh grade level. And then gradually we kind of got them back into it and they self-studied. Now they were in ninth grade and seventh grade, they were capable. So we provided them lots of different types of books and we kind of helped guide them through. We tried the online school program from the state that didn't work so well. Um, and in the end, both Amanda and Sean got their GEDs um, and are in college now without any issues. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Sometimes you also got to release the pressure of suddenly, oh, I got to do all this stuff. Well, maybe wait a bit, wait a bit, talk to some folks that have been doing it for a long time. Uh, my friend Casey Peters does a homeschool support thing out in LA. I think it's online. Find these little supports here and there and then start to build your program up, right? It doesn't have to be full, comprehensive let's start and go right take your time and do it right it's challenging though right because this is the way they were i mean this, this, i went this to yeah i went to private school there was lots of pressure i sucked it up when people made fun of me i don't know what your problem is and why are you speaking with vocabulary like that they're just gonna make fun of you like yep. yeah <laughs> can you imagine being a parent facing homeschool and you got full ADD and you're like, <laughs> where do I even start? Yeah. I can't imagine running a school with ADHD either. <laughs> well, yeah, it had its, its, its moments. Um, but the bottom line is there's resources out there. If you search, Yeah. right. They are out there and there's support mechanisms out there if you search. So don't panic. Just start gathering your resources, contact other people, whether they're in your country or all over the world, it doesn't matter. All right. There's a time zone thing that you're going to run into, obviously, but contact those resources and really start to um, embrace them in a sense, learn from them, you know, find some, you know, talk to the kids. I would sit down with the kids and say, what do you want to do? Well, my daughter is an artist. She goes, well, let's, let's start an art school. So her homeschool title was Amanda's School for Art. Right? So she did a lot of her art stuff. And then through her art, we learned some other things. Right? And actually, when she got to high school, all I did was purchase the GED book and said, here, what do, what do they need? What are they asking for? Right? 
yeah. you do your art and stuff, and then let's weave this in. And so she gradually learned, and she passed them all fairly easily. And next thing you know, you know, now she's applied and is going to go uh, to school for animation and, and coding. Right. Wow. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's um, it can be done. It's daunting, but it can be done. Right. I would, we have seven minutes left. Oh. And yeah, I know. I mean, I think I could talk. <laughs> this could go on for like 24 hours, I think. Um, so one of the questions that that's burning me is to ask you, uh, what is one of the latest research that you find really interesting around atypical brains? Um, well, the research uh, keeps changing, but the most important thing to really understand is the impact on sensory integration in terms of how that brain reacts and how that brain grows. And, um, you know, the farther we are in terms of being outliers, the more uh, epigenetic impact you're gonna, your brain's going to have. So how do you cope with that? I mean, we know with, with G2E brains now that there, we have more white matter, the connective tissue in the brain, it's denser. The uh, sensory input or the arousal meter in the brain is, is denser, it's wider, it's thicker, it's, and it, you know, it just brings in so much more information. Um, we know that there's there are greater volumes of gray matter. Uh, we know that the, uh, the amygdala, which is part of the, the fear factor in the brain, the limbic system, in 2E kids can be 85% larger, right? So okay. these are things that really are impactful. So you are starting to see if you have a, a larger amygdala, you have the capacity for much more emotional reactions than a, someone that may not have that, right? You have the capacity for intense sensory information that may overload you easier, right? And cause triggers, you know? And I use a horrible example to demonstrate this, but you have positive, neutral, and, and negative prints that are coming into you constantly, right? So if you are, con- and this goes back to, if you're constantly experiencing negative prints, right? That has a direct correlation to poor mental health. Um, so you need positive nurturing, especially the first five years of life, uh, is essential from, a, from at least one adult. Um, the bottom line is you are going to have negative prints. You're going to have negative triggers and those triggers just last longer. So I recently have a, uh, worked with a family and, and the father who's in his sixties never understood why he had a phobia for dogs until we traced back the print that he was bitten by a dog at four years old. And it was kind of a nasty thing that embedded itself so deeply. Now that they recognized it, you know, now they have a couple dogs running around the house. Um, <laughs> in essence so it's really really important to understand developmentally where our kids are at and why they're vulnerable right why they can be emotional and sometimes if we don't provide them the language of emotion they react in other ways so there's a whole there's a i mean i'm 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 scratching the surface on this stuff (laughs) if folks are interested dr matt sakreski and i did a full webinar on this on the tui brain a couple of years back, um, it's on the website somewhere. Um, but the bottom line is that is the basis for understanding your kids is to understand the neural impact 
and why that makes our kids more vulnerable. So I'm talking in circles a little bit here, but um, that would be the place I would start when you're talking about developing metacognition is to teach the kids about themselves. Mm -hmm. Teach the kids about who they are, right? And that starts with the brain. Um, is anxiety disorder, which is a really common thing in our population, um, mm -hmm. related to the larger amygdala, the larger Absolutely. brain matter? Okay. Absolutely. And because because the, the limbic system is attached to the vagal nerve, which attaches, you know, that whole system attaches through the central nervous system. Uh, when we're vulnerable to having anxiety, in a sense, because we're very you know, susceptible to that, what ends up happening is it, it, it embeds itself in the central nervous system at a molecular level. So when we see kids struggling with anxiety, especially gifted 2E kids, it seems like they're always on that edge, right? They're always on that edge. And that's because it's right there. It's in the central nervous system. So any time they feel threatened, right, you get into that fight, please, uh, 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 fight, please, fright. And so that part of the brain, the emotional, the limbic system takes over the driver's seat and kicks out the prefrontal cortex. So suddenly when you're living with anxiety, you are constantly scanning for threats perceived or even unperceived, right? So you're living in, in anxiety because the limbic system has taken over the driver's seat, right? It's embedded itself. So unless that anxiety has been, has been uh, you know, treated in a sense and looked after and released, you know, through different techniques, um, Dr. Sharon Selina and I did a six-week uh, workshop on anxiety last fall for preteens and, and young adults. And we're going to do another one for adults coming to spring at some point. But unless you know how to treat the anxiety, and I said that will continue to spiral and dig and dig and dig, right? And then you'll you'll be living your life, you know, on the edge. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with our son. You know, everything became, you know, he was struggling with anxiety so deeply that he couldn't function, you know. And he'd get to school and everything would be a defense, right? Because he felt threats from, from all over. Yeah. And every single year he ended up being homebound because he couldn't, just couldn't get and get to school, right? And it was that difficult. Um, and so that's what we see in our kids. And, and so when we start seeing signs of anxiety, that's when we need to get help pretty quickly because you don't want that to grow and fester. And our kids are naturally more vulnerable to anxiety based on what their, what their brain is telling them to do. Mm -hmm. So the more we expose that to them in terms of, hey, anxiety is tricking, it's lying, it's a liar. It is telling your brain in a way that it shouldn't, right? And I know folks out there have, uh, my good friend, Dr. Dan Peters, you know, anxiety book out there, which is, I would recommend, especially for younger kids to go through, because he really explains in depth what that anxiety, that worry monster really is. Mm -hmm. um, so for in terms of anxiety, I would, I would check out that resource. Um, but it, you know, it continues. I mean, we have anxiety as adults. Sure. Right? Um, and here's the other thing, you know, giftedness, twice exceptional, all that stuff. That's a, that's a lifetime. It's not just designated for 12 years in school, right? It is a lifetime. So you have to learn 
accommodations and coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms over a lifespan. And, and that is really, really important because we don't address the gifted young adult graduating, the gifted two-e parent, even the elderly. We don't do a very good job of doing that. And that's, that's another topic that that's for a different day, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So we could spend another interview on <laughs> or another six week course, probably moreover. Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up um, because we value your time so much. So guys, if you want more, you can go to giftedandthriving.com. I'll put it in the comments down below and everywhere else um, as well. So check out his website. He has online courses and again, his books, his article. I don't have to tell you more go and research as we always do. And thank you again so much for being here. If you have any more, like if you're watching the replay and you want any more uh, questions, then comment down below in the replay and we'll get to those as well. And with that, I would say have a great day. Folks, you can contact me at my email. Um, What is it? Support at giftedandthriving.com. Um, and just, I don't know if I'm allowed to say something about an upcoming thing. Go for it. We are, we are starting a new seven week course called the fit where I'll be talking about what is starting off with what is 2E, what is gifted, what is neurodiversity and going into the brain and then going into challenges and and school and parenting. And it's going to be a seven week course where we do a live and then discussion right afterwards. Um, so if anyone's interested in that, just, uh, it'll be up probably next weekend or this coming weekend. My wife does all the behind the scenes stuff. I don't do any of the heavy work. I just do that. <laughs> oh, so, <you> talk. <laughs> and, and do the writing and, and, you know, meet with families. So, um, at any rate, so that's coming up and, uh, just, uh, thank you guys for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely. Later. All right.